Hi, everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock, your host for the fourth episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. So August was National Immunization Awareness Month, and with school starting up, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about vaccines, which sadly have become a fraught issue within the parenting space. And certainly I have received some notifications from my school reminding me to get my kids vaccinated. So I know at this time we have a lot of parents thinking about that issue, frankly worrying about that issue, and many people have questions. So I thought we would tackle that today. Now, I am unapologetically and fiercely pro-vaccine. I've written about the issue for the Wall Street Journal, and I've had countless, and I would sometimes say fruitless, arguments on various social media platforms. Um, Certainly on my own Facebook feed, I have um, put up my articles and other articles um, talking about the importance of vaccinating, Um, but it does often, uh, you know, it, it ignite a fight on on my feed, and I have responded, um, you know, on Twitter and other social media platforms. Um, I'm not really sure there's a more divisive issue out there, and you know, there's a lot of support out there for the anti-vax messaging. There are, um, and this this I think confuses the issue even more. There are movie stars and mommy bloggers, and even you know, seemingly knowledgeable or respectable people like medical officials and people in the news media that. Um, spread conspiracy theories on this issue every day. Um, There's just a lot of um, messaging out there that that seems legitimate, um, but really isn't. Now, for some listeners, this might seem like an odd fit for this program. Um, You know, I, (laughs) this podcast, it's designed to encourage parents, uh, you know, to parent the way they think is right to do what they think is best for their kids and their kids well being. but on the first episode of Bespoke, I explained that, you know, even though I really think parents need to trust their instincts and they need to, you know, do what they think is best, that doesn't mean um, that there aren't experts, experts that really are partners with parents um, and they know a lot more about certain subjects. And I think that's really important that parents view them that way. Um there just are, are people out there that know a lot more than me <laughs> about certain issues. Um, and I personally listen to their guidance. Um, so one of those people who knows a whole heck of a lot more than me on the topic of vaccines is Dr. Paul Offit, who I am. I'm really, really thrilled. I'm a huge admirer of his, and I'm really thrilled to have him on the show today. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Offit. Thank you, Julie. It's my pleasure. Um, so, okay. So for those who are familiar with this issue and know, um, and know Dr. Offit, they know you as a major rock star in the, in the vaccine and infectious disease world. You're certainly one of the leading faces and voices, um, in the media, um, on the, on this issue. Um, but you also have a day job. Um, let me give you, uh, let me give the listeners a quick bio. This is sort of your official bio. Uh, Dr. Paul Offit is a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases and an expert on vaccines, immunology and virology. He is the co-inventor. I mean, he invented a vaccine. He is the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine that has been credited with saving hundreds of lives every day. I mean, just think about that. I, I can't perfect banana my banana bread recipe, so I am personally very like that. That just amazes me. Okay, Offit is a professor of uh, of vaccinology. He's a professor of uh, pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and he is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Phil- Philadelphia, better known as CHOP, the best hospital for children in the world. So again, Dr. Offit, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Um, so let's just jump right in here. I don't want to. I don't want to talk a whole lot. I really want the listeners, and I personally want to hear from you. Tell me. I mean, what's the state of vaccines in this country? First question, and then follow up by why aren't people vaccinating? I'd say generally the state of vaccines is good. I mean, you have. I think we ask a lot of parents in this country. I mean, we ask them to get in the first few years of life 
vaccines to prevent 14 different diseases, which can mean as many as 27 inoculations during that time. It can mean as many as five shots at one time to get uh, to prevent diseases that most people don't see um, using biological fluids that most people don't understand. I think it's it's actually a testament to the parents in this country that you know a, a solid 90% of them will will make sure that their children are up to date on vaccines in those first few years of life. I mean there 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 is a, a solid sort of I would say one to two percent of parents who simply don't trust vaccines. They they think that they're harming their children and they refuse to get them. But it's it's a small it's a small but vocal minority. You know, that minority, though, really does. I, I think, yes, I think you're right. There's one or two, um, you know, percent that are you know solidly, I mean, passionately anti-vax. But those people sort of contribute to what I would call the vaccine skeptics or resistant vaccine resistant folks. And to be honest with me, with you um, uh, and my audience here, I, I was one of those people. I delayed vaccines for my first child and but I simultaneously read about them and sort of became much more relieved and, in fact, annoyed um, at the anti-vax movement, which is why I think this issue is so important to me, why I've written about it and why I care about it, because I was sort of, I was one of those sort of ill-informed, very nervous moms. Um, and I, so I think that, you know, we can talk about that one or two percent, but there is there are vaccine delays. There are people who choose maybe want to do one vaccine that they view as important, but not another one. There's a much larger group of people who, who, who sort of are in that group. And we see that those people also maybe not wanting to vaccine uh, or not wanting to fully vaccinate in order to go back to school. How, how is, is that growing? Or do you think that group of people is, you know, is it sort of stagnant or is that a growing group of the sort of the, the skeptics out there? You know, I see it. First of all, I think it's good to be a vaccine skeptic. I think yeah. you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body. I mean, you know, now through the COVID-19 vaccine raising, it's had people, you know, CNN and Boston Globe have done polls and find that anywhere from a third to a half of people will say they wouldn't get a vaccine if offered. I would actually put myself in that group. My, my feeling yeah. about that is I, I want to wait to see what the data are before I know that, that it is safe and effective, at least in my age group. Um, so I think it's good to be a vaccine skeptic. I think you should ask questions. And, and so people have questions like, do vaccines contain harmful ingredients? Do children get too many vaccines too soon? Is it overwhelming or weakening their immune system? That's fine. Uh, the good news is uh, that, that there are answers to those questions. And I think what happens is, is when, when you know, studies have been done and, and the questions have been answered, and then people still don't believe those those answers and still choose not to get get vaccines. That's when you sort of cross the line from being a vaccine skeptic to being a vaccine cynic, which is to say right. you just don't believe those, those studies. And, and that's right. when I think... That that I have less sympathy for. Well, it is interesting, and I think um, I think that's the key, though. It, are people willing to listen to the other side? Are they willing to have a conversation? And I think part of the problem is, is that um, you, I, and I think increasingly so today. No matter what the issue is, people are sort of closing down and not willing to have those conversations. And I think there's other things, particularly in the conservative sort of people that are um, are more conservative, um, you know, there's a lot of things wrapped up in why they might not want to vac vaccinate. You know, there's a so sort of, this is a government mandate. And so that's sort of, I mean, that's the kind of thing that makes me kind of itchy. I don't like that. I don't like government mandates. Although I do think in some cases they are warranted. Um, I, you know, and, and so I'm able to sort of make those separations, but I think for some people it's just, all government mandates are wrong. Um, I think there's also this idea of don't tell me what to do, which is which is kind of connected. And then, you know, from Christians, and I, I was hoping that maybe we could talk about these concerns I hear from more conservative folks. But again, it's interesting. I don't know that this really is a partisan issue because I hear these same arguments no matter what your politics are. But I do want to talk, you know, from, from a Christian's perspective, a lot of evangelicals and a lot of Catholic friends of mine are concerned about things like fetal tissue. Um, this is one of these things that constantly comes up in my own conversations on this issue. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Maybe we can also talk about some of the other things I hear. Right. And that has come up. I mean, there are uh, four vaccines which are made from um, two um, elective abortions that were performed in the early 1960s, one in Sweden, one in England. And those, those, those cell lines have been used to make vaccines, you know, for the 60 years since. Um, but, you know, an abortion is 
sin. I mean, from the Catholic perspective, a sin, you know, worthy of excommunication, which means yeah. that you um, don't get to participate in the in the sacraments of the Catholic Church. You're sort of expelled from the from the Catholic society. And and so I think Catholics reasonably wonder: Is this okay? Is it right. okay for me to inoculate my child with? Vaccines like the, the chickenpox vaccine or the hepatitis A vaccine or the rubella vaccine or one of the rabies vaccines that, you know, that were derived from these fetal cells. And so, I mean, the Catholic Church has weighed in on this through the Pontifical Academy of Life back when Joseph Ratzinger, you know, was the head of that right. uh, 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 essentially policymaking body for the Catholic Church before he became Pope Benedict XVI. And he, he ruled on this that, you know, that that because the Catholic religion, like all religions, you know, cares deeply about health, including child's health, that, you know, that on balance, you know, that you're, you know, that you're, that you're saving lives. And and, and in a sense, you're preventing spontaneous abortions in the sense that, you know, rubella virus can cause a lot of spontaneous abortions. So if you can prevent rubella virus, you're preventing spontaneous abortions. So that's the ruling. I mean, it's uh, it's unlikely that any of these companies are going to go back and rederive these vaccines in in, uh, in non-fetal cells. So this is just something we're going to be living with. And and again, on balance, it's certainly the Catholic Church has ruled on this. Yeah, it's interesting. I I also hear, you know, I I, I get into a lot of conversations about this on in, in in conversation. The word conversation is being generous, but I get into um, I I try to always you know stay calm and be civil. And, you know, your voice is, is very compassionate. Just listening to you talk about this, where you say like, it's good to be a skeptic and Catholics have every right to be concerned about this stuff. I mean, that is a voice that I think a lot of people on the pro vaccine um, side really need to adopt because these are legitimate issues and people do have legitimate concerns. So I really, I just, I really appreciate that. But it's interesting when you actually dive sort of deeply into some of these objections, you know, I had one person talk about religious exemptions. And when you actually look at, mo- you know, most large organized religions do not object to vaccines. And there are some, of course, there are going to be some much smaller Christian groups that, that do. Um, but even the Christian scientists, I look at, I looked at their position on vaccines and, you know, they're generally opposed to medical interventions, but it's interesting when you look at their official position, it's sort of, if you feel you want to get the vaccine for your children, get the vaccine and then pray that there are no adverse effects because of it. And so they're not actually objecting to the vaccine or saying you're excommunicated or you're not allowed to get, you know, um, or not allowed to attend our church anymore. So it's, often more complicated that than that and many and and as you've mentioned and and what I was just saying is most religions do approve of vaccines but this gets into this yeah. kind of go ahead you know I, I never I mean I was so inspired actually by a woman named Rita Swan who was a Christian scientist who had chosen not to vaccinate her uh, son her 15 month old son when he had a form of bacterial meningitis caused by a bacterium caused, called Haemophilus influenza type B. I mean, this was before there were vaccines, but it wasn't before there were antibiotics. And she chose prayer instead of antibiotics for her son, and her son died. And, and with that, she um, became really a vigorous activist against that. It, it bothered her not only that her son died, obviously, it bothered her that she could do that, that she was allowed to do that, that there was yeah. essentially no recourse against her doing that, yeah. that she said that her, the fact that she prayed meant that it was okay that she didn't give her son uh, antibiotics, that this 15-month-old boy dies unnecessarily. So she became actually the basis for a book I wrote called Bad Faith When Religious Belief Undermines Modern Medicine. But it's funny, I came away from, from that. I mean, I actually read the New Testament in, in preparation for writing that book. And, and I just came away with the notion that that a choice to put your child unnecessarily in harm's way is is the opposite of religion. It's the opposite yeah. of, of what what is taught in, in either the New or Old Testament. And it's just it was just it, it to me it's religion at its worst. You know when you use it to to yeah. do, to put people in harm's way or to express your, your sort of worst sort worst sort of um, instincts, whether it's yes, homophobia but, or misogyny or whatever. Yes, yes, and, and exactly. But you know, but your voice on this, I've always I've I've seen a lot of clips of of you of interviews. I've, I've heard a lot of interviews and I have read a lot of your writing and you are, you do, you are compassionate to people, um, and don't dismiss their religious beliefs. And certainly it is important to point out where, um, you know, it, it sort of, uh, uh, you know, when you, when, when your religion dictates, you know, doing something that's quite reckless. And again, I don't think the Christian science religion does that. Um, I think they've been very clear that, you're welcome to go ahead and give your kid a vaccine, but you know, you should pray for no adverse 
um, reactions to that vaccine. Um, but I, but I do think that it, it really is important, especially what you mentioned about the Catholics, that the Catholic church has been very clear on this with guidance that they are pro vaccine. And so, because again, I see these, these, um, arguments trotted out all the time and it has, it has a profound effect on, for instance, fellow Catholics, you know, it's not just, um, uh, but so anyway, I just, I, I just wanted to thank you for, 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 I think you're very respectful on that matter and, and, um, and are compassionate towards people for having, you know, beliefs that might make it a struggle for them. Um, I, I, uh, I want to also talk about, and this is less, this is much more of, um, something I hear, you know, uh, across the board, it doesn't matter what politics you are, but tell me a little bit about, you know, when you see other influentials out there talking about, um, you know, how vaccines aren't important. You, we've got a real big problem in, in Hollywood. My favorite is Alicia Silverstone um, of clueless fame saying that she doesn't give her child vaccines, but she gives them miso soup every morning. And that seems to protect him from all sorts of infectious diseases. <laughs> and you you have a lot of um, Hollywood actresses. And we, we may a- a- pretend that those people don't have influence, but they do. And what do you think is the best way to push back on that kind of stuff? Well, I think, first of all, you're exactly right. I think they do have influence. I think when people see either Alicia Silverstone or others um, who who have been, who are become anti-vaccine activists like Jenny McCarthy, um, yeah. that, that they think, or Jim Carrey, I mean, they see them on the bigger little screen and they, they assume they know them. They assume at some level their characters are yeah. them. And so, and so therefore they have influence. They clearly have influence. That's why they're used to sell products. Um, and so you're given a platform. And I think when you're given a platform, there's an enormous responsibility that comes with that platform. And there are many uh, uh, celebrities, you know, like Jennifer Lopez or Amanda Peet or um, others who have, Kristen Bell, who, who um, yeah. use that platform to, 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 to stick up for the science. And I, I just, I have a lot of respect for that because it's not easy. I mean, it's much easier to take the, the anti-vaccine position, I think, in some ways, just because it's, it fits for that. What you argued, I think, correctly before, was there is not a politics to this. I think both right, the right, right and the left, you know, sort of can be anti-vaccine activists. On the left side, it's more the kind of, you know, crunchy granola, right, um, all right. things natural, you know, right. dolphin-free, et cetera. Food. So, so, <laughs> so, you know, th- th- that, that's where I think they come in. And, and in Hollywood, that plays. So I, I give... Uh, I give the, the people like Amanda Pete credit for standing up because yeah. it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily reflect their community, but you're right. I think it's irresponsible to be given a platform and use it uh, to put children in harm's way. Yeah. It, well, and, and also, I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't know what your opinion is on when the sort of modern anti-vax uh, movement, because you can't really, there's no really, there's, <laughs> there's not really a, a start date. I mean, there's always been people saying this is bad or harmful or scary, or I don't want to put this in my child's body. Since vaccines really, you know, emerged, although, I, you know, those were lonely voices back then, back then, for instance, when a polio vaccine came into play. So, um, but, you know, they, you can't really, but, you know, necessarily pinpoint a start date. Maybe you do. I, I really don't. But, but Oprah and Oprah having Jenny McCarthy on, who doesn't love Oprah, right? I mean, that was devastating in terms of here's a, a woman who everyone trusts or most people trust and see as friendly and caring. And so that those moments um, have a, a profound impact on on the audience. And, and I think it's, or, you know, and and her following. And I think it's very, very hard to push back on that, particularly when and, you know, certainly you're the exception here. But, you know, science communication isn't always I don't know. It's been I think it's been improving over the last several years. But there wasn't a good pushback on that, at least a glossy Hollywood pushback, not at, not at first. But you mentioned Amanda P. you me- mentioned other um, Hollywood stars out there pushing back, and that's helpful. But for a, there was a lag time there um, where there wasn't sort of that counter message. Right, and the counter message shouldn't necessarily come from, from celebrities. Right. I mean, I mean, it's the people who know this, the, the, the data the best, and you, you stated this at the beginning of this program, are people who understand science. And, but, you yeah. know, I can tell you as a scientist, as a lifelong scientist, being trained to, to communicate with the public <laughs> is the opposite of the way that we're trained. Right. I mean, for the what 25 years I spent inoculating mice in a windowless room at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, <laughs> um, that wasn't training for being in the Colbert Report, I promise you. So, I mean, that, that's what we're always fighting against. And we're not, we're, not, we're not good at it. We're not trained for it. We assume everybody else is doing it when they're not. It shouldn't be your celebrities versus our celebrities. No, exactly. It shouldn't come down to that, but sadly it does. 
Well, you know, I've, I've written on a number of issues that um, that consumers are very afraid of. I often, you know, will defend um, pesticide use and I will I will defend, um, you know, chemical preservatives that keep things fresh and affordable. And um, and, uh, you know, oh, I, I spent a long time defending GMOs. I get all the issues that um, that most moms look at me like I'm crazy, you know, so um I, you know, I have this sort of history of, of, of looking at things that are really scaring moms and being curious about them. And I enjoy, I enjoy kind of delving into that stuff. But you mentioned earlier that it is harder to, it's harder to take a certain position. And boy, it's not easy <laughs> trying to explain to a mom why GMOs are perfectly fine or why pesticides are not going to kill their kid or where, I mean, these are, t it's tough. And I, and I'm certainly not a scientist, but one of the things that I've tried to do is look to the writing of people like you and other scientists in the field and sort of translate it into more understandable ways. Because to be honest with you, I think, I think the, one of the, the drivers for me is that, you know, I had this little baby. I didn't, I, I was a Hill staffer. I, w I worked on Homeland Security issues. I had a clearance. I would go to, you know, briefings and learn about scary people. And then I have a kid and I'm being told that, you know, everything is going to kill him. Everything. Like, I mean, I'm not talking just vaccines. I'm talking like the crib sheets were going to kill him because they have some sort of flame retardant chemical on them. And oh my God, the food, the food, I mean, that that's going to kill him too. So I was really overwhelmed by this. And I think going through that, I have this understanding, but the problem was I couldn't find good sources on the other side. It was very, very hard for me. Um, and, you know, soon I found you and I found many other people, Richard Pan and other, other folks that were, 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 um, we're kind of pushing back on this and, and it was helpful, but it was very hard to find. And I, you know, I know, I agree with you that it shouldn't be your Hollywood star versus my Hollywood star, but we can't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in your world. I'm like a normal mom. I pick my kids up at play dates and, and school and the, and frankly, like moms are, I think a lot of moms aren't really checking the work of the, of the leading, you know, virologists in the country. They're, they're reading people magazine. So that's kind of why it is important that we have Hollywood stars and influentials on the other side. Yeah, I, th I think, no, I agree with you. I, and I think they are clearly influential. I think we, we scientists need to get better at this. We do. Yeah. We need to get better at explaining what we do, why we do it, what we're learning, how we're learning. And, and now, you know, we're coming up to this COVID-19 vaccines, which I think we'll have by next year. It becomes all the more important because, you know, our lives have been turned upside down by this pandemic and vaccines along with the you know, hygienic measures are our way yeah. out of this. And if we, right. if we don't explain this well, and cause people are skittish about the, the COVID-19 vaccine, then we're going to, we're going to be even more hurt by this. And I, I, I mean, I wrote a book uh, called bad advice or why celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't, aren't your best source of, of health information. But in that, I talk about the weaknesses of, of scientists in terms of communicating science to the public, why it is we're particularly bad at communicating yeah. science to the public, but the time is now to step up and learn how to do it. Yeah, if, if I want to tell the viewers, if I didn't impress you enough with or and give you an impression of how impressive uh, Dr. Offit was, you've read how many books? Have you written 12, 12 books? 12, um, I think so, 11. I think it's 11. In books? Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Well, um, I'm impressed with your time management skills as well. Tell me a little bit. I, I do want to just touch on the COVID vaccine because I know you also are on um, an I think you're on an NIH, NIH panel. You're on one of the panels trying to develop a vaccine. Is that correct? Well, so I'm on the, the NIH so-called active group, um, which is, is uh, put together by Francis Collins, who's head of NIH, to try and sort of accelerate and uh, facilitate the development of the vaccine. I'm also on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. So wow. okay. yeah. um, the purpose of, of, the, of the NIH committee is really just to sort of help design what the trials would look like. I mean, to sort okay. of uh, help to, to help uh, figure out how we're going to test for safety issues. And, you know, there are a number of people that are on that group, including the pharmaceutical companies. So that, that's well, the purpose of that group. Well, if any, if any like, sort of the skeptic skepticism about masks with totally burns me up and that's a whole different, as I, I always say, it's a different Oprah show or it's a different bespoke. We don't have time to get into the mask debate at all. But, but I, I wonder if you can comment a little bit on, you know, there's, I've, and, and I've already seen some skepticism or, and some outright, de, you know, just declarations that I will not take the COVID vaccine, you know, from people. So what is, speaking of the science world, again, we need scientists to come out and reassure people. 
what do you think the communication will be on this vaccine? What do you think that, you know, the communication about safety and, 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 and will it be safe? I mean, we should start there. Like, is this going to be a, you know, obviously I think it's going to be a safe vaccine and I think they're going to be tests, but how do we reassure the, the public that it is? Well, so if we finish the phase three trials, which is to say large prospective placebo controlled trials that, that as recommended by our group, the NIH group is a 30,000 person trial. That's fairly typical for vaccines. Yeah. Uh, the human papillomavirus vaccine was a 30,000 person trial. The conjugate pneumococcal vaccine was a 35,000 person trial. So that, that is for, although clearly the timelines have been compressed here, um, you know, and, and the government basically has basically paid for phase three trials and paid for mass production. So that took the risk out of it for pharmaceutical companies, meaning the financial risk. Um, as long as we do that phase three trial and let it go to completion, then I think what you can, then, then the question is, what do we know? And what, what don't we know? I mean, what, what hopefully we'll know is that let's say 20,000 people got the vaccine safely. Now, now that's not 20 billion people. Um, so we haven't ruled out a rare adverse event, but again, you know, we have systems in place like the vaccine safety data link, which can pick that up. Um, and then we'll know that the vaccine is effective at a certain level, hopefully 70 or 75 percent effective for a certain period of time, let's say four to six months. But that doesn't mean it's going to be protective for a year or two years or three years. We're only going to know that post uh, post approval. So I think what we need to do to communicate this is, is make sure that we manage expectations so people can know what we know and what we don't know and what we're going to learn and how we're going to learn it over time. But I mean, if they think if it's been tested safely in, in 20,000 people, you can be assured that at least it doesn't have a, a very uncommon side effect problem. And if the virus is still killing a thousand people a day, I think that the benefits then would clearly outweigh what at that point yeah. theoretical risks. You know, interesting, you, 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 one of my favorite quotes, and I hope, I hope when I say this, you recognize it because I have quoted you before, <laughs> but you said, um, we haven't just eradicated the disease what you were talking about vaccines. We haven't just eradicated the diseases. We've eradicated the memory of the diseases. Um, that is correct. Correct. Or maybe I'm paraphrasing. That, that, okay. No, that was me. Okay, good. That is a brilliant, uh, that is a brilliant quote. And it really captures, I think where we are right now. And I often, when I give public speak speeches about, um, sort of the issue of fear, um, consumer fears. I often use that to say, you know, we've eradicated the memory of a lot of hardships um, that occurred, you know, in recent, very, very recent history. And it's it's interesting to me to kind of think about how COVID may change the opinions of vaccines, because I think a lot of us kind of are getting a sense that we may not go fully back to normal until there is a vaccine and until enough people have gotten that vaccine. And so do you see how do you see a change maybe in the, you know, the, the that one or two percent? I don't I don't think we'll ever see a change in that one or two percent, but maybe, you know, fewer vaccine skeptics that of because people really do want to go back to normal and they might might see um, how vaccines really how at least this covid vaccine will will facilitate that. Yeah, I think sort of this hits on a central worry, actually, I mean. I have to go on Fox News tomorrow and then I'm on CNN twice on Sunday and Monday. And I hope I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to make the point now that, to, to them that I'm about to make to you because I haven't made it yet. There are two ways we can we can rid ourselves of this this pandemic, and, and they both have to be in play. One is hygienic measures and the other is vaccines. By far and away, the most powerful of those measures is hygienic measures. If you wear a mask and you stand six feet away from somebody, you're not going to get this infection. You're right. not. It's spread by small droplets. You're not going to get it. Uh, on the other hand, if you get a vaccine, let's assume the vaccine is 75% effective, which would be great. I think everybody who's involved in this program would be happy with 75% effective. Yeah. What that means is that 25% of people, and, and by effective, what I mean is protection against moderate to severe disease. That's the clinical endpoint. The clinical endpoint is not infection. It's, uh, it's, it's significant symptoms associated with infection. Uh, yeah. so, so, so that would mean 75% of people are, are protected against moderate to severe disease, which means 25% aren't. And you don't know whether you're one of those 25% or not. Right. It means one out of every four people that get that vaccine could still get moderate to severe disease associated with infection. Also, I, this is not going to be a measles vaccine, which is uh, provides sterilizing immunity. I mean, you're protected right. against everything. You're protected against asymptomatic infection, mildly symptomatic infection, everything. Right. That's not going to be this vaccine. I think you're probably still going to be at some risk for you know either reinfection or asymptomatic reinfection, in which case um, you could still be shedding. So so which is to say we should still use masks. And yeah. you know if, you, if you've watched like companies like countries like Germany or China or Japan or Singapore or South Korea have basically wrestled this virus to the ground using only hygienic measures. Yeah. I think we yeah. if if we if we didn't do that at all and only used a vaccine, 
we wouldn't be able to do as well as with hygienic measures. So imagine trying to get people to wear a mask who've already been vaccinated. I mean, right now, they don't, it's hard enough to get people to wear a mask because, as you say, somehow people consider this their freedom. I mean, it, it yeah. shouldn't be your freedom to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection any more than it should be your freedom to run a stop sign. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's something that you're doing to somebody else as well as yourself. And so yeah. it's going to be I think this is going to be a struggle over the next couple of years. That's really interesting. You know, I, I want to just ask you um, uh, one one more question. And I, I know that we're coming up on our, our time break here. But, um, you know, this is I, I'd like to ask you about close uh, about schools, some cl- schools remaining closed. And I'd like to specifically ask you, first of all, you know, your opinion on school closures. And I can be kind of sympathetic because I think I think a lot of um, schools are are dealing with parents who are really afraid, and I think you know teachers are afraid. So we can have some sympathy on that. But one thing that has really, this is sort of a personal question. In my school district, they have chosen to close entirely, and but there are some vulnerable populations within any public school and any private school. It's not just public schools, but in my particular private school or public school district. There are something called IEP and 504 students. These are special needs. These are kids with ADHD, ADD, autism, other disabilities. These are kids with Down syndromes and other developmental issues. And um, and 504s are some behavioral issues. Um, and these kids are very especially vulnerable, but there's not very many of them. And my school district has chosen to not even allow those kids to come into a massive school. I mean, I live in a big city. We have big schools, big facilities, you know, big buildings. And hasn't even allowed those kids, those very vulnerable kids who, friends, who basically cannot do, most of them cannot do an online format of school. And so I'd like to ask you your opinion of that. You know, you have a huge school. You have about 175 students. Usually about 500 students go to this one building. This one building. There's only, it's actually more like 150 of them are these special needs kids. And I'm just sort of baffled at the idea that you can't space them out. You mentioned these hygienic um, steps that a lot of, you know, countries like Germany and Japan have taken, you know, and their, and their schools are full, fully reopened by the way. And I know that's partly because of the, the you know, there's no new infections, but they also put cleaning stations in these schools. So I'd like to kind of get your opinion on that and why schools, I understand maybe doing a all, um, I mean, I don't totally understand it, but, um, you know, doing an all online format, but particularly for these needs kids, why are schools so afraid to let anyone in the building and any child in the the building, especially ones who have these special needs? No, I think you make a great point. I mean, first of all, it's, there's so much good that comes with going back to school. It's not just the special needs kids, but for some children, it's their best meal during the day or or the only meal during the day. I mean, there's, um, you know, it frees up parents to go, to go to work. There's there's a social component to this yep. being able to go to school and, and you know and some kids who are for example being abused um, that's when that child abuse gets picked up so there's yeah. there's there's much that good that comes with going to schools I mean number of, of 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 countries have opened up schools without a problem but they've had pretty strict guidelines on that I mean for example yeah. people wear masks people have cleaning stations it's the teacher that moves from one classroom to the next not the student that students will eat at their desk if they can not necessarily the cafeteria. And if it is yeah. a cafeteria, they, they maintain space. I mean, all that stuff you need to do that was re- were really outlined by, by the CDC early on when, yeah. when the question was about going back to schools. Denmark certainly had school reopenings without a problem. So there's no reason we can't do that. Um, but we don't do it. I, I think it's hard to do it in a, in a, in a uh, population, for example, in Florida or Texas that are, or Arizona or Southern California that are on fire with this virus. I think it's harder there. But that's not true of most communities. And I right. think you also have to get past the notion of, of zero tolerance for infection. I mean, exactly. there's going to be some, some infection. I mean, there, and there, you know, so the, so the question is who's most at risk? The people, there, there's been in, in ch- children less, children, children, so people less than 18 years of age, there've been about 90 deaths so far, which obviously is, is awful. But right. remember, it's, it's probably half of the number of flu deaths we had last year, right. children, which was right. about 160 deaths. So, um, you know, and, and so we, to- we, I'm not saying any death is, is, is any, I know, tolerable, I know, but we I know, do seem to tolerate those flu deaths. So <laughs> I, I just think, you know, the, it's the person who's most vulnerable is the teacher, especially the older teacher. So they, right. they need to be, wear a mask and, and be careful and stuff. But I think the way this well, plays that, out that, in the media, which, which hasn't helped is that, that, you know, when we do go back to school and areas are going back to school, the first teacher that gets sick or, you know, right. forbid, dies, that's going to be in the media for three days. And, and, you know, we just, 
we just if, if we want to avoid infection and death, then stay inside for the next three years. Yeah. The minute we walked outside, there's a certain level of risk, and we're going to have to decide what level of risk we're willing to tolerate. Well, you talked about, you know, um, you know, kids being, you know, uh, at school to avoid abusive situations or meals or whatever. But, you know, we can't also forget the academic side of school. I mean, they're also supposed to be educating school or educating kids. And I think and the reason I bring up the kids of with IEPs and 504s isn't because I'm, you know, just that's all I care about. Although I do have a child with a with a, a, a special need and he has an IEP. Um, but, you know, I'm just trying to account for the kids who are most vulnerable, who will not be educated under those circumstances. And I think you've nailed it and you frankly nailed it for the entire population that there is this weird idea now in our country and among moms in particular that everything has to be 100 percent safe and proven. You can't prove some things you know, it's very much this, I always talk about the precautionary principle, which is the regulatory sort of structure used in Europe. You know, it's the, or I always say in mom, to translate it to mom speak, like the better safe than sorry um, uh, sort of philosophy. And that is, that is to me, a, a lot of what the problem is here is that, you know, when we're dealing with these unpredictable and really unknown diseases, it's really hard to make things absolutely 100% safe. And, and certainly going to school carries with it some risks, but I think for a small segment of the population, like special needs kids or English English language learners for crying out loud. I mean, can you imagine these kids, they're learning language in a school, their parents bear, probably do not speak, they certainly don't speak better English than their children. And they're trying to figure out how to get on a, you know, Zoom and Clever and, you know, you know, the Chromebook. And I mean, it. so I just, I do think that schools could be better about servicing vulnerable populations. And I think that COVID has made it um, sadly impossible for many of them. So Dr. Offit, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. And I, I, I'm sad because I really want to spend more time talking to you because I, I have about 30 more questions that I haven't gotten through, but I know, um, I know you're busy saving lives and writing books and doing things that are totally impressive. So, um, I, I think we'll end it here. Well, we can do this again sometime. That'll well, be well tell, before, before I let you go though, do tell people, I mean, if, if there's a Twitter handle or, um, you know, a, a, a new book coming out or something that you'd like to promote on this podcast, please let us know. Okay, well, I had a book that just came out called Overkill When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far, because I think it's important to yeah. release a book when not a single bookstore in the world is open. <laughs> I think that's you know, always clever. Excellent. Excellent. Overkill. Overkill. Well, I will certainly, um, I will now go on Amazon. I will buy it and, and I will put a blog up <laughs> on it to, uh, to uh, be, hey, because Amazon is still, is still working. So, so, so God bless Amazon, right? Um, right. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, doctor. It was really, really, uh, really great to talk to you. My pleasure. Take care. All right. So it was, it was great talking to Dr. Offit and, um, and, and as, as he said, we can do this again. I will certainly have him on again because I mentioned that there were a number of questions. I'd like 30 questions, but you know, um, this is not a two hour podcast, so I, um, I couldn't ask him everything, but one thing that I did not ask him, and I think is kind of important, um, to, to mention, particularly for people who might be listening to this and are, you know, skeptical, we touched on the religious stuff. We touched on, um, you know, some, the idea that we've forgotten that the, the horrors of these diseases, what they did to, the, to a child's body. Um, and, and then, you know, we go into our pediatrician, we get a shot and then we never need, need to think about it. And, and that is wonderful. But one issue that seems to percolate a lot. And I know people who, you know, fully believe in modern medicine, you know, get their kids vaccinated, but they have this nagging worry. And, and I say they get their kids vaccinated. Some, some don't. Some really, you know, ha- are put off vaccinations because they have this nagging worry about this supposed, this rumored connection between autism and vaccines. This, I, I'm going to give a, just a real quick summary of where this rumor is and why it is it is not true but um but i want to be very very quick here and say that that and and i'd love to have i'd actually love to have dr offit on again to talk more fully about this but that um sort of connect supposed connection between autism and vaccines that is related to what's known as the mmr vaccine measles mumps and rubella okay and this is a very safe vaccine it has something like, I think, a 95% um, 
um, effective rate. Um, and, you know, incredibly good safety record. Not that there aren't people who have had or children that have had adverse effects from this. There are. There are children who've been harmed by these. But the rumor out there is that, oh, this causes autism. The MMR vaccine causes autism. And that is because that rumor really happened in the 90s when a doctor who has since lost his medical license um, published a report, a, a study in the medical journal Lancet. One of the most, I would say the most respected medical journals that said that there was a he had found he had proved that there was a connection that that study was later retracted. It was found to be fraudulent. And he actually acted illegally um, in doing that study. And he had he was at simultaneously trying to develop an alternative vaccine, which would have brought him billions of dollars. And so there was also um, a conflict of interest, which he did not uh, did not relay. And so there were a whole, just a whole host of problems with that study. And yet that study set off this panic, worldwide panic about the MMR vaccine causing autism. Okay. So, so, you know, here we are today and, you know, I, I try to explain that, 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 that study was fraudulent. That study still gets cited, by the way, it still gets cited. I see it. People are like, oh, well, have you seen this study in the Lancet? And, and it's, and typical, you know, it, the study itself, the fraudulent crappy study gets a million headlines in the media and then the retraction gets two. you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's so frustrating. But anyway, so I try to reassure people, no, 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 that's not a good study. That's a fraudulent study that was retracted. And by the way, the Lancet almost never retracts things, okay? So it's a major thing if the Lancet, the major medical, British most respected medical journal, for them to retract something, it's a big deal, okay? So, but the other thing I think people need to understand is something happened just a couple years ago. Okay, be, wait, I have to back up. Um, what you hear from people as well, autism rates have skyrocketed. Autism rates have gone up. Yes, they have gone up. I am not arguing about that. But I think it's really important to point out what happened a couple years ago um, within the, you know, the psychiatry world, the psychology world. What they did is they changed the definition of autism. Okay. And so I'm, many of you have probably heard, I'll just give you an example. Many of you have probably heard of the uh, the condition called Asperger's. Okay. And Asperger's is, 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 is very similar to autism there. These are very high, high functioning, you know, uh, uh, people that, you know, which today we call on the spectrum. Right. And so what happened a couple of years ago is they got rid of all these individual, I hate to say as, um, autism -y or as, uh, you know, similar to autism, uh, conditions. And they put them all in one big, uh, diagnosis, category and it's called autism spectrum disorder. It used to be Asperger's and autism and this one and that one all separate. Now it's in one, uh, one diagnosis called the autism spectrum disorder. Okay. So that is why we have seen this massive ballooning of the number of autism cases. It's because they changed the definition it's not because suddenly a bunch of autistic people are coming out of the woodwork or, you know, oh, the MMR vaccine is causing all of these people to have autism. It is because of a simple change in the autism diagnosis. The other thing is you have to realize, okay, I remember in the 80s when Rain Man came out. Okay, this is a movie that came out in the 1980s. Nobody had heard of autism. Okay, I remember, I remember, I remember that movie so clearly. It made such a big deal. But what it did is also it really informed people that this condition exists. Well, you think about it today. I mean, everyone knows what autism is. Okay, and so it they they have been able. The medical field has been able to come up with much better ways of diagnosing people, much better ways of determining people who have autism, where a lot of people, you know, sort of fell through the cracks. I mean, I, I think probably all of us, certainly, you know, at my age, you can sort of, you remember the kid that was a little strange or, you know, maybe didn't make eye contact or, you know, sort of rocked or did other, had other sort of tics. Well, you know, he, he probably in the eighties, he wasn't diagnosed as autism, but today, they have much better a much better sense of of the manifestations of the disease and the signs and the and the characteristics and so so between you know better diagnosis techniques and tools plus the change of the definition we have had yes an explosion in the number of of autism diagnosis and the number of autism you know individual autistic individuals or i should say people on the with autism spectrum disorder um so i think people who need to understand this stuff. It is, it is not, it's not because of the MMR vaccine. 
it's because of some pretty banal reasons, really. I mean, oh, look, they changed the definition of the diagnosis. That's the real reason, not some sort of nefarious conspiracy between pharmaceutical companies and the government to cover up something that hurts children. That's insane. Um, so I really do think that that you know that was a question. I'm sure I'm sure Dr. Abbott could have explained it in much better terms than I did, but I did my best. So, um, you know, I, as I end this podcast today, I think we've gone a little bit over time. Um, you know, listeners know that I like to end this podcast by spending a few minutes talking about what life was like before some of the modern conveniences that are so often vilified as killers <laughs> or as harmful to children um, or the environment, for inst- instance. Um, we see this this narrative with things like plastics. Uh, people say we need to stop using plastic. You know, plastic should be done away with, um, you know, from, you know, your, your containers for holding leftovers to plastic water bottles. And to be honest with you, I I do think there's a very good argument about reducing the use of plastics, um, especially in certain shipped products. I ordered some some hair bands, some rubber bands. I always have very long hair and I always put it up in a bun. I should probably just cut it off. But um, I ordered some rubber bands. Simple. It was like $3 on Amazon. I ordered these rubber bands. I, it can't, it was like in a CD case. Do you remember those old CD cases where you could literally injure yourself trying to get into it? it? It was a huge plastic case that it came in. Now, that seems to me unnecessary. First of all, rubber bands are not going to break. They don't need a special plastic casing. So that kind of stuff, look, I'm in that camp. I think that we could really reduce plastic use. But plastic has so many benefits that we never hear about. It's durable, it's lightweight, it's versatile, it's cost effective. Um, And especially germane to this topic we're talking about today, it keeps things sanitary. You hear this stuff about processed food, which is often labeled as bad for you, but which also offers consumers like, I don't know, working moms, major convenience. Um, and, And while most processed foods are presented as nutritionally empty, that is not true. You, you, you have even things like, you know, cereals that may look unhealthy and sugary. Many times they fortify them with vitamins and nutrients. And, you know, some kids are just not going to get that stuff um, through a fruit or through a vegetable. And so there are some benefits to this stuff. Um, you know, another thing, and, you know, finish up here. But another thing is, you know, the word factory, you know, it's basically a pejorative at this point, you know, um, you know, oh, fat, you know, you know, factories are terrible. I don't know if anyone remembers that Chipotle ad a couple years ago where they sort of made it seem like Chipotle is so virtuous and all other um, restaurants, you know, use factory food. And they showed a cartoon of a factory with, you know, cows um, probably suffering, of course. Um, You know, we should marvel (laughs) at the invention of the factory. It allows machines to do quickly what took men and women hours, days, months, years to accomplish. They had to do things very slowly and very inconsistently um, and, and often got hurt um, doing these things manually. So, so the, and you know, the sort of creation of the, the, the factory um, and look, I'm not, and, you know, I'm not sitting here defending sweatshops. I'm talking about um, it allowed people to sort of get, you know, get get inside and do a job. And today, the automation it allows machines to do work that was very physically difficult, or that is very physically difficult. And so that these are benefits of these things that we so easily dismiss as sort of gross or ew or you know um, as not good. They they really are. They're a, a, a definite plus for society. Um, vaccines are definitely one of these things that is easily dismissed these days by people who don't have any clue. And I don't mean to be rude, but um, I, I don't, I do feel like many people don't have an, a concept of what it was like to live without vaccine, uh, vaccines. The CDC actually um, has this really great page, um, which I use quite often, um, to sort of show people, okay, what was it like? And this is just data, um, before the middle of the last century, diseases like whooping cough, polio, measles, and the flu and rubella struck hundreds of thousands of infants, children, and adults in the U.S. Thousands died every year from them. As vaccines were developed and became widely used, rates of these diseases declined. Um, 
nearly everyone in the United States got measles before there was a vaccine and hundreds died died from it each year. My mother remembers a childhood friend of hers being in an iron lung because of um, because of polio. And one of my great aunts died as a two year old from something today you get a vaccine from. So my mother and my immediate relatives have have memories of people dying or being disabled um, because of these diseases. Um, more than 15,000 Americans died from diphtheria in 1921. I mean, do we even think of diphtheria today? No, we do not. Um, and, and let me tell you why. There have only been two cases of diphtheria reported. Um, there were only two cases of diphtheria reported to the CDC between 2004 and 2014. I don't have more recent data, but 10-year period, two cases. Of course, no one remembers the dangers of diphtheria. Um uh, rubella, um, also known as German measles, um, in, in the year uh, 1964, 1965, there was an epidemic and it killed 12 and a half million Americans uh, or infected. Rather, it killed 2000 babies and caused 11000 miscarriages since 2012, 15 cases of rubella were reported to the CDC. So I think it's really important that people, you know, kind of have a handle on just how serious these diseases were and just what a miracle vaccines have been to um, the growing health and um, of, of the American public and of children. Um, the, the, you know, the mortality of rate of uh, rate for children um, is something to be very happy about in the United States. Uh, countries across around the world are still struggling with some of these diseases. And, um, and so I, I, I hope people take a little time to sort of put it in perspective when they're considering putting off vaccines in many countries, people will walk miles, will wait in line for days in order to get a vaccine for their children. So we're very lucky in this country um, to have to have the benefits of modern medicine and vaccines. Thanks, everyone, for being here for another episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. If you enjoyed this episode or like the podcast in general, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure that the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. If you haven't subscribed to the Bespoke Parenting Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, please do so so you won't miss an episode. Don't forget to share this episode and let your friends know that they can get Bespoke episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.